we've been going through the book of James and we're getting near the end. And uh, our message, our big theme has just been about this idea of what true faith is. That true faith is not just making sure you got all the words right and true faith isn't just that you sincerely believe it. It's not enough. James has made really clear to us, it's not enough just to have a heart faith. It's not enough just to have a, an intellectual faith. That your faith, if you have a true faith, it will result in works of love and works of mercy. Again, to be clear, works of love and works of mercy don't, don't save you. They don't save you. But they are produced I could say naturally produced, perhaps better to say supernaturally produced when we have true faith. If all you have are right beliefs and that's not doing anything in your life, it's not changing how you think, it's not changing what you value, it's not changing you know, how you look at people who, who are in need. If that's not happening, the Bible's real clear, it's not true faith. True faith changes us. And it changes us in a way that it leads to these works of love and mercy. Now, when I used to uh, teach at the seminary, I taught Greek, and we would translate um, the Greek I was teaching. I was, we taught some from the Bible, but we also taught from classical Greek. And from classical Greek, we, we would translate these different fables. And one of them was about um, these apes, these monkeys, gorillas, I'm not sure they look like this, but they, something like this, that, that, that the story goes that this, this person had trained these apes to dance like human beings. And then they would dress them up. They would put them in human clothes and they had masks on and they would, they would perform and they became very famous. Like people would want to see these you know, dancing apes, and because they looked so much like human beings when they were dancing, it was uncanny. But then one day, somebody, probably somebody a lot like me, a little bit of a wise guy, um, decided he would do something. And so what he did was he threw a peanut onto the stage. And you can probably guess what happened. As soon as the peanut went on the stage, the apes forgot all of their training, they forgot their clothes, they forgot their mask, and they started fighting over the peanut. Because no matter how well trained they were, no matter what they looked like, no matter what they were wearing, they were still apes. And when apes see a peanut, they want it. I sometimes think that that's how we can be as, as Christians, that, that we have these, you know, we, we, we become Christians in a sense that we have faith, but we don't really understand or believe that we've been changed. And so we can wear the mask of a Christian. We can have the clothes of a Christian. We can do the acts of a Christian and everybody can see that, but as soon as somebody throws a peanut on the stage, whatever that might be, we revert to who we really are. And it's because sometimes 
even though we know that we've been saved, we live between two worlds. We, we, we live between two worlds. And what we have to know is that that's part of our reality. The Bible never tells us that when you become a Christian, you become perfect in every way. It says you're righteous. It says you've been reconciled to God. It says you have the Holy Spirit, that you've been made new. But there's still the pull of the old ways. That, that self that was crucified with Christ is kind of like the zombie self. It keeps coming back, keeps causing problems. And so often as Christians, even as true Christians, we feel like we're living between two worlds. And while we might not fight over a peanut and revert to our, who we are, we'll revert because of some other reason. Could be trauma in our lives. It could be, um, could be blessings in our lives. We, we all think that what we would do if we were facing different situations or in different circumstances, but we really don't know. We all think this is what I would do if I was persecuted for my faith. We all think this is what I would do if, if I went home today and there's a package waiting for me from a, a lawyer and the lawyer said, you have this relative that left you $20 million. I'm going to tell you right now, I would tithe. I'm not going to tell you what I would do if I got home and actually had the package, right? Because what I would do, I know what I would like to do, but I don't know what that, that peanut on the stage that's going to make me revert. We live in these two worlds. Or maybe better said, we have two worlds that live in us. And you have to know, if, 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 you're, not, if you're not aware of that, you just have to know that one is going to control you. One thing Jesus makes clear, one thing Paul makes clear, and now James, is you cannot serve two masters. You're going to choose one. And it's not the one you say you choose who's really your master. The one who's really your master is the one that when you look back, when you look back over time and you say, Time and again, what did I choose to do? Did I choose to do what God said or did I choose to do what I wanted or did I choose to do what the world wanted? When, when, I, when I was interacting with other people, did I treat them the way God wanted me to treat them or did I treat them in the way that I wanted to treat them or the world wanted to treat them? When, when I go and I think about my possessions, when I look at how I've used my possessions, when I look back over the past, Who's really in control of my life when I just look at how I use my possessions? It's, it's not just what you say. It's what you do. James makes that really clear. And so James is here. He's, help, he's trying to help this, this first-generation church. These people, uh, some of them probably saw Jesus. They probably knew Jesus. They might have even been there when Jesus was crucified. It's this first generation, fresh. They're, 
they're largely Jewish Christians. Some of them have come from a more traditional Jewish background. Some of them are ethnically Jewish and they like the food and they like the festivals, but that's about it. But they, they understand and they understand that, that, their, that their understanding of the covenant, their understanding of, of their relationship to God is God chose them and they have these works to do. But James has been trying to help them see the connection and we've talked about this before, that it's not enough just to have the right beliefs and have the right works. We have to have the right connection and the right connection is the right beliefs produce the right works. That's, that's not what they had. They, they could do the right actions. They could have the right beliefs about God, but the right beliefs were not changing them, weren't making them new and leading to the right actions. And so last time, last week we talked about the importance of teaching, the centrality of teaching in the church and how, how crucial that is and how much damage that can be done. But then we also saw that, that when the teacher is wise and when the wise teacher teaches in such a way that wisdom kind of takes over the, the community of faith, that, that James ended with this picture in uh, chapter three where he talks about a harvest of righteousness sown in peace. Says, man, this is what happens. When you have divine wisdom, it's pure, it's reasonable, it's peaceful, it's gentle, it's all of these things. It's not just the content. It's just not wise information or wise advice. There's a spirit to wisdom. And that spirit can take over like the community, take over the church, where the church has that spirit. And when that spirit is there, what happens is wise recognizes wise. And that, that, that becomes like the, the whole character of, that, of those people. And so he's saying when that happens, there's a harvest of righteousness. Why? Because more and more people look at that and they go, that's what I want. I don't want to be hanging around with people that are always fighting, that are always jealous, that are, that, you know, who's trying to be in charge and who's trying to, you know, take over and all these other things. I don't, I don't like that. I don't like where I can't trust anybody. But when I see a community that has these wise teachers that have taught wisdom in such a way that the wisdom is taking over and there's, there's this peace and there's this harvest of righteousness, people are attracted to it. Because they know that's the way we should live. They know that that doesn't mean like that, that the wise people have suppressed everybody else. It doesn't mean that, that the wise are just stronger Look at how in chapter, th in chapter three, the wise were described. They weren't described as powerful, strong, authoritative. Nah, reasonable, gentle, peaceful. And so James has just laid this out and it's so wonderful because, you know, James can be kind of hard. You know, I don't know that we would appreciate James as as a teacher, because he's just like, again, like just giving us this harsh reality again and again. But then he says this really 
great thing about wisdom and this harvest of righteousness sown in peace. And then he starts this chapter, chapter four. Remember, James didn't write chapter four and then start. There was no chapter headings. He's just writing. So right after he says, harvest of righteousness sown in peace, he says this, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? He just talked about harvest of righteousness sown in peace, and now he's talking about, but you guys know you guys fight. You know you have these quarrels, and he goes, what causes them? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world make himself, makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says, he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? So, what do we see? He's asking this question. So, if wisdom, wise teachers, is supposed to create this peaceful environment where harvest, the harvest of righteousness can take place, why are you guys fighting? Here's why you're fighting. You're fighting because you follow your natural desires and you follow the way of the world. And when you do that, that leads to conflict. You Christians, you who've been changed, you who have been indwelt by the Holy Spirit, if you give in to your natural desires, if you give in to the ways of the world, it will cause conflict. It will cause quarrels. That's what he's saying. If you remember back in chapter one, he had talked about the whole progression of sin, about how sin begins with desires. And again, by desires, he's not using it in a general way. He's using it in a way that we desire according to our, our world nature, our fleshly nature. It's people who really understand what it means to be a Christian, who really understand the high call of God upon our lives, they wrestle with this. There's a lot of people who don't really understand it, they don't wrestle with this. That may be you, I don't know. But you don't really wrestle with the high call of God on your life because you kind of don't think about it. Because when you wrestle with the high call of God in your life, what you're willing to do is, is not just in the day-to-day -day make wise choices about how you use your time and your resources and your money, but you lay your whole life before him. You lay everything you value. You lay your future, your, you know, your career, everything you think. And you lay that before him and you say, God, your way, not my way. And you wrestle with it. Because even if you mean to do well, if it's birthed in your desires, and if it's birthed in the way of the world, 
it will always prevent you from the high calling of God on your life. Always. You see, the thing about Christianity is not that there are super Christians and that there are just kind of the regular Joe Christians. And most of us are regular Joes or Janes or, I'm sorry, Jane. Um, you know what I mean, right? It's, everybody thinks that there's two tiers of Christians. It's not true. It shouldn't be true. It's not in God's design. And God's design is that every Christian has a high calling. Every Christian. It's just the ones that we see that we think are just the common Christians are the ones that have said, you know, no thank you. Oh, I, I, I'll serve you. Um, I'll, I'll, you know, I'll contribute, I'll help, I'll do all these things. But that whole surrender, my entire life, future, everything that I think is important, ah, that's for the super Christian. It's not for me. The Bible doesn't give us that out. We all have a high calling. But James talks about how this, this desire, this, you know, leads here, he says it leads to this doubt. And the doubt is, he says, you don't have because you don't ask. Why aren't you asking God? Well, you're not asking because you don't really believe God provides. Or maybe you kind of understand at a certain level that what you want from God, you haven't really asked him if he really wants to give it to you. It's easier to go buy that thing really fast and then ask God to bless it. That's a lot easier than to say, God, should I even buy it? You know, I, I, when I work with high school students, you know, I would ask them sometimes, I would say like, how many of you did this? How many of you helped God out? You helped God out by deciding what major you should have. You helped God out by deciding what profession you wanted. You helped God out, God out by applying to the schools you thought you should apply to. And you helped him out by narrowing it down to like a few choices. And then you said, God, which of these three should I take? Which of these two should I take? We do this all the time. We, we narrow down the choices for God and we say, which one of these should I take? I mean, I don't know, again, if you did this, please don't tell your spouse. But if, if you were torn between your current spouse and some other person and those, you thought these were the only two options and you said like, oh God, which one should I take? Right? Well, Paul gave us an, an, another way to think about it. Paul said, you know, in some situations, you don't narrow it down for God because God doesn't want you to choose either. <sighs> no, that can't be. I remember we, we had this guy come and speak to our college and, and when he spoke to us, we thought he was old. And then my mom said he had come to speak to their college group and she said he was old then. But his name was uh, Chester Swore. And Chester Swore had, you know, he would go and speak all over, um, all over the United States back in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. 
And I remember one time he was talking to our college group and he was talking about his own life and he said how he came to the conclusion that, that he had the, you know, God had given him the gift of celibacy. And we all thought simultaneously and then confirmed after in our post-meeting discussion that simultaneously we said, please God, don't give me that gift, <laughs> right? Like, great, great for Chester, awesome Chester, worked out for you. Please, don't give us that gift. But, but we, we do this sometimes, we, 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 we try to help God out. He says, no, don't just sort through your desires and then ask me to choose the best one. Why don't you start with me? Why don't you trust me? Because you see what happens from desire, there's doubt to the point that you don't want to ask God. And then it leads to, in verse 4, he says, you adulterous people. And when James is a good Jewish you know, first century Jewish person would, would use the word adulterous. He's, he's connecting it to idolatry. Adultery was always connected to idolatry in the, in, in the Old Testament. And what he's essentially saying is you are worshiping the ways of the world because that's what you're following. Or you're worshiping yourself because that's what you're doing but you're certainly not worshiping God. You're not placing God above all things where you're seeking after him above all things. He says, this is the life without wisdom. This is what the life without wisdom does. The life without wisdom just follows its desires or follows the ways of the world. And so if we go back to this harvest righteousness from peace, you know, our immediate thing is to think like, oh, okay, 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 uh, uh, that's what I want. So, but instead of actually seeking divine wisdom, because remember, as we have learned over the past few weeks, if you want divine wisdom, you don't just ask. You have to ask with steadfastness. And you cannot have steadfastness unless you have faith that has been tested. So everybody who just wants to have a comfortable faith, to have a comfortable Christianity, can never have wisdom. It's not possible. Not according to James. Wisdom comes from, from steadfast prayer and steadfastness comes from a tested faith. And so we're like, okay, that's too hard. You know, so what I want to do instead is let's just, let's just make everybody get along. Let's just somehow manufacture peace in our church, in our community. Let's do that instead. James says no. He says this peace comes from wisdom. The righteousness comes from the peace that comes from wisdom. And the wisdom comes from steadfastness that comes from a tested faith. Wisdom 
divine wisdom is needed for a peaceful community that can lead to righteousness. No shortcuts here. And as long as you're living by your desires or by the ways of the world, you, you, you cannot. That's what, that's what James says in verse 4. If you're going to be a friend with the world, you're at, you're at enmity with God. You cannot be a friend of God. And what we need to, to get is to understand what James had introduced in the previous chapter is wisdom is more than just the content. Wisdom is also the spirit. And he's saying, how do we know this? Well, you see this in Jesus. Jesus wasn't just saying, hey, everybody, do as I say, but not as I do. Okay, I've got these words from God. They're important. You guys do them. I'm going to go do my own thing. No, the reason that, that, that we see Jesus as this incredible, powerful, you know, most awesome teacher is because he lived the wisdom that he preached. And James is saying, that's, that's what we do. That's what we need to do. That's what, that's what the teachers in your church need to do. But remember, as we talked about last week, all of you, if you're Christians, you're all either being discipled, which means you're on the way to becoming a teacher, or you are a teacher. And if you're going to teach wisdom, then you, you have to be living the wisdom that you teach. That's why it's so important that we have a tested life. You see, if your goal is a comfortable life, again, you can't have, you, you can't have a tested faith. A tested faith goes against a comfortable life. And so many American Christians especially have been told that, that that's what Christianity is all about. It's all about, you know, you getting this peace of happiness and security of blessings of, of God in your life. And that's how you know God loves you because he blesses you a certain way. And I know some of you are smart enough to know like, oh, I don't believe in all that, you know, name it and claim it stuff and all that. No, you believe in a different version of it. You believe that every trial in your life cannot come from God. When in fact, God sometimes brings trials into our lives as a way to test our faith so that we can be steadfast and we can have divine wisdom. Instead, we, we trade a tested faith for a thin faith. And I'm gonna tell you, a thin faith is way more attractive than a tested faith. To try to get people to come and join your church and you say, you know, we try to live out our faith in such a way that it will be tested it's a lot harder sell than, hey, just come here and Jesus will take care of all your problems. A thin faith is more attractive. But you see, when we are not willing to have a tested faith, when we're not willing to have what it takes to have divine wisdom, then it becomes a generational problem. Because if we're not willing to do it, how can our children have any hope of having divine wisdom, if they've never seen us go through 
and have our faith tested. If our whole objective is to keep their life as comfortable and happy as possible, how is their faith ever tested? How can wisdom abound if we think that the objective is to have a comfortable life? See, James says this is the problem. He says, where is the quarrels? Where are they coming from? And then if you go again, go back up to chapter 3, he had said, if you don't have divine wisdom, what happens is selfish ambition. And that particular phrase he's using there talks about the kind of ambition that divides groups. You don't have divine wisdom. When that's not, a, you know, a foundational, fundamental character of, of, of your church, your community, Selfish ambition comes in. Well, he continues, he says, and this is where James lets us up. He says, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Everything starts with true repentance. True repentance, all that kind of downer talk at the end. It's all about repentance. Be wretched, mourn, weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord. He says, if, if you want to stop worshiping at the idol of yourself and your selfish desires, if you want to stop worshiping at the idol of the world and the way what the world values, submit yourselves to God. Humble yourselves to God because when you do, your desires don't control you anymore. The world doesn't control you anymore. You're saying, God, have at it. Take my life. Take all that I am. Use me how you see fit. See, True humility, true submission can't begin with me submitting to you and you submitting to me. If that's the case, then, then it's, always, it's still always going to be about power. It's going to always be about who's in charge. Because, uh, you know, and, and again, we, we have examples of this um, where you have the submissive, um, fake submissive nature, and it usually happens at your office around lunchtime. Right when people are like, um, where do you, where do you want to go get lunch? Oh, I don't know. Wherever you want to go, well, let's go to Zippy's. Well, I don't want to go there. Um, well, where do you want to go? Well, I don't know. Wherever you want to go. Right, and you can ask ten people, and all of them will say like, Hey, uh, wherever you want to go, that's cool. But inside, they actually don't want to go to some places, even if they don't know exactly where they want to go. That's, that's fake submission. He says, no, we submit to God first. 
And see, when we're all submitted to God, guess what? Even though it doesn't really work with the office analogy, instead of asking the question, where do you want to go for lunch? It's, where does God want to go for lunch? Right? Where does he want us to go for lunch? It's, it's a different question altogether because we're trying to align our will with God rather than align our will with each other. It's no longer about power. It's no longer about just trying to be submissive because whenever we try to generate submission, we will submit ourselves to the wrong people. We'll submit ourselves to whoever or whatever walks in the door if we think they have a good idea. But no, we start by submitting to God. And when we do, it's no longer about power. It's about love. And we submit because we want to we love like God loves. We want to love perfectly. And we know we cannot as long as our desires or the way of the world keeps holding on to us. The last section, he says, Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? And see, here is where it comes full circle. When we submit to God, we keep his law of love. We submit to God. We want to do things his way. His way is always love because he's the God who is love. It's, again, what that love looks like is going to change. Depends who we're loving, depends on the situation. It's always going to change. But make no doubt, we will love. And it's not love for ourselves. It's love for God. It's love for others. That any love we have for others can only be properly directed by our love for God and our love from God. There's no way we would speak evil against a brother. No way we'd speak evil against a brother if we're obeying God's law to law of love. There's no way. Um, you know, James is connecting back to chapter 3 again where he talked about the tongue being this poison, being so destructive because it reflects what's in our hearts. So speaking evil against a brother means you have evil intent towards your brother. He says that cannot be. It cannot be for a Christian. And he's saying the same thing John said when we studied 1 John a few, few months ago. There's, there's love and there's hate. There's light and there's dark. There's no, like, safe middle ground. You can't say, I love my brother and I'm going to speak evil against him. No. And then that, that ending part seems kind of confusing to us because, you know, we, we see him repeating the same words and, we, you know, we're not sure what he's talking about. So let me just kind of summarize it. When you speak evil against a brother and you disobey God's law, his law of love, or what James called earlier, the royal law, when you do that, you know what you're doing? You're saying you're better than God's law. 
You know better. You're like, okay, God's law of love. It's a good idea that works in most situations, but not in this situation. Notice, again, James is giving us level one of the game. He's not even giving us the heart. He doesn't say, if you speak evil against an enemy or a stranger, he's, he's given us the easiest case. It's in a brother, somebody in your church. He's, he's given us the, the easiest bar to get over. But you're saying, but you don't know. You don't know what, what she said about me. You don't know what he did. You don't know how that hurt me. You don't know. Your law of love applies in every situation except this one. I'm going to speak evil. You're making yourself a judge of the law by saying you're better than the law. The law was, you know, flawed. There's, a, there's an exception here that God didn't consider somehow. See, because you're not just saying you're better than God's law. You're saying you're better than God. You're saying God is asking you to do something that's just wrong. He's asking me to love my brother who did something to hurt me. And God, you're wrong. Just going to tell you, if you ever find yourself in the middle of that sentence, talking to God, you, you should stop. Maybe get to God, and then just stop. And fill it in later with something nicer. Say, God, you're wrong. Your law's wrong. You're wrong. I know better. We're right back to idolatry. We're right back to self-worship. We're right back to desires overwhelming reverting because someone's thrown a peanut on the stage. We're right back. Right back there. I just want you to think about this for a second in a church, especially in, in the way we do church, right? And the way we, 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 you know, we have our leadership, but we also have, you know, we, we're going to have our church council meeting this week, business meeting, you know, input so many people in the church who have input into what we do. Just think about this. It only takes one of us, me, you, just one of us, to give in to our own desires or the desires of the world to cause division. Just one. Just one. And I don't say that to scare you, although I think it should be a little scary. But I tell you that to say, that's why we need to be disciples. That's why we need to know his word. That's why we need to know his heart. That's why we, we need to continually submit ourselves to him. That's why. Because it only takes one person to introduce the world into the church. 
Only takes one. So, for the health of the church, for the wholeness of the church, for the peace in the church, we have this great responsibility to be disciples. To be disciples that want to know, that want to pursue with all we are, who we are in Christ, what he's called us to be, and what he's called us to do.